So a few days later, I had a call from Judy. Now, you watch these. They're a hunting pair, I reckon, those two. (laughs) (coughs) Asking me to do this last session on uh, Nehemiah. And added, by the way, can you add the theme of preventing burnout and preserving power? Well, first, I was going, burnout. What do we mean by burnout? Something to do with stress, isn't it? Well, that's what I thought, but it's not quite as simple as that. Psychologists consider stress uh, in a different way to you and I, probably. They generally consider it to be quite a good thing because stress actually is what motivates us. Uh, When Nehemiah learned the state of the wall, it caused him some stress And really, that was his prime motivator to go and get something done about it. So this stress is good. What we generally think about is stress is when we're overstressed, there's been too much. So slight difference there. But burnout might involve stress, uh, but it's more of an emotional thing, I think. It's associated with phrases and words like depression, exhaustion, Lack of recognition for good work, feeling that you've been taken advantage of, uh, unsupported. How come I'm doing this on my own? And what's everyone else doing? So, sort of looking at that, then I was thinking, well, whose burnout and whose power are we talking about? So apart from mentioning that, I'll leave you to come up with your own answer as we work through. So, a quick refresher on Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, hears the news from his brother that after several years of returning back to Jerusalem from exile in Babylonia, the people of Jerusalem were in great difficulty and that foreigners who lived nearby looked down on them. His brother also told that the walls and the city gates were still in a state of disrepair. This news so distressed Nehemiah that he prayed to God. It was a prayer of contrition, recognising how much God had done for the Jewish nation, yet they had repeatedly not kept God's laws which had been given them through Moses. And he begged for God to help. It took four months, yes, four months, before the king noticed Nehemiah's distress. And he asked about the cause. So God doesn't always work in the ways that we want him to do, or at the speed that we might want want him to do. But if nothing else, that four months' wait gave time for Nehemiah to form a plan with the help of God. Concerned for Nehemiah, the king finally released him on the understanding that he would return when the problems were resolved. After a long trek, on reaching Jerusalem, Nehemiah kept quiet about his purpose while he surveyed the scene to assess for himself the condition of his walls and the gates. He then met with some officials and persuaded them to start rebuilding the wall and restoring the gates. 
who was met with obstacles all the way along. I kind of think this is where the devil comes in, if you like. And they start off with Sambalat, Tobiah and Geshem. So as soon as the news was out that the Jews were planning to rebuild the wall, Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem, who were enemies of the Jews, started scoffing. What sort of things were they saying? Chapter 4, it tells us, what do these miserable Jews think they are doing? Do they intend to build a city wall? Do they think that by offering sacrifices they can finish the work in a day? Can they make building stones out of heaps of rubble? What kind of a wall could they ever build? Even a fox could knock it down. You know the sort. They're always around, these people, aren't they? The ones who do nothing but seek to ridicule those who try to do things, who try to improve things or try to make changes. They are resentful of those who achieve in life. And I have to say I feel a bit embarrassed to admit it, but I have been one of those sorts at times, uh, putting people down and being resentful of people who popped up and you go, where's he come from? Who's he's only a little whippersnapper sort of thing. Uh, of course, what was happening there with uh, Sambalat and co. is that they saw that the Jews were working together and they recognised the strength in that teamwork and what can be achieved by a number of people when they become a cohesive force. Suddenly, the Jews, whom they had ridiculed for being useless, were becoming a threat. Excuse me. As it became more apparent that ridiculing the Jews had failed and that the Jews were making good progress on the wall, Sanballat and Tobiah and others plotted to attack. Uh, my view here is, again, that Sanballat and co. became angry. They could see the transformation in the Jews as a result of them working together. The threat posed by the changing status of the Jews was becoming ever more real and even bigger. Fortunately, Jews living in the countryside got wind of the plot and were able to warn Nehemiah of Sambalat's intention to attack. So Nehemiah armed the people with swords and spears and bows. Nevertheless, the Jews became frightened until Nehemiah reminded them that God was on their side. Don't be afraid of our enemies. Remember how great and terrifying the Lord is. And fight for your fellow countrymen, your children, your wives, and your homes. From then on, they carried weapons while they worked, and the attack never came. It's a case of standing up to your enemies, in a way, and then suddenly they sort of back down. This way that you know, bullies, in effect. Uh, and then the devil appeared from within. 
as fellow Jews were oppressing fellow Jews. The rich Jews were becoming richer on the backs of their fellow Jews who were becoming poorer. Nehemiah remonstrated with the oppressors and persuading them to cancel all their debts. And I kind of think, how often do we stand up against the powerful people and tell them that actually they're doing the wrong things? Um, Not very often, perhaps. Having done that, Sambalas and Co then tried cunning, trying to trick Nehemiah out of the city or tricking him into doing things within the city that would actually discredit Nehemiah. And Nehemiah just refused to be distracted by these people. And finally, the wall was repaired, 52 days, uh, and followed by a period of celebrating and the Jews confessing of their previous sins and a renewing of vows and promising that they would not intermarry anymore. We will not turn away from God again and we will abide by his rules as given through Moses. Nehemiah became governor of Judea for about 12 years, so quite a long period, and in that period he said that he lived unselfishly as a living example to his people. As we read in chapter 5, During all the 12 years that I was governor of the land of Judea, neither my relatives nor I ate the food I was entitled to have as governor. Every governor who had been in office before me had been a burden to the people and had demanded 40 silver coins a day for food and wine. Instead, I regularly fed at my table 150 of the Jewish people. In other words, he was the master becoming a servant in a way, and we get that idea that we have through Jesus as well. Uh, He used what resources he had to serve others. After 12 years, he returned to his cup-bearing duties as promised. And it would be nice to think that the story ended there, a successful story, perfect ending. That wouldn't work though, would it? Amongst other things, the Bible is a story about people and their relationship with God. And people and their relationship with God is far from perfect. So uh, that's uh, not where it ended. After a period, an unknown period, Nehemiah, or the king, released Nehemiah and allowed him to return to Jerusalem once more. What did he find? Perfect city, running in harmony? Sadly, not. Deterioration is what he found. And uh, the high priest, Eliashib, high priest, Eliashib, who had helped in the reconstruction of the Sheep Gate when they were repairing the wall, was the one who gave the uh, enemy of the Jews, Tobiah, 
a room in the temple, Paul spoke about this last time, a room that was used to store offerings to God. And Tobiah, as an Ammonite, was not even permitted to enter the temple, yet he'd been given a room in the temple by Eliashib. I can't imagine Nehemiah's frustration at this. And furthermore, because that room had been given up, the, uh, I've lost my place, the Levites and the musicians were not being paid. So they had to return to their countryside to make a living uh, on their family farm. So the church was not functioning properly. And to me, this represents the, uh, what people always do. Times are good, times are hard rather. We come to God and ask for all this, and then when things are good, we tend to think we can live on our own, by our own wit, and uh, we shift our focus away from God. Um, whenever we do this, though, there are consequences. Now, coming back to today's reading, is, uh, I noticed that Nehemiah's responses sort of escalated in a steady way, and it's first with a warning. The people of Judea, as he said, were treading grapes. Others were loading corn, wine, grapes, figs, and other things on their donkeys, taking them into Jerusalem. I warned them, I warned them not to sell anything on the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was getting lost in the daily uh, rituals of living. Uh, no time was being set aside. But notice, his first action was just to warn people. Second was a reprimand. Some men from the city of Tyre were living in Jerusalem. They brought fish of all kind into the city to sell to the people on the Sabbath. He reprimanded the Jewish leaders. Notice he's not criticising, or he was criticised, but he didn't reprimand the sellers at this point. He was reprimanding the Jewish leaders who had permitted this to happen. They're the ones with the responsibility. Uh, so he's not the traders. Now, third action, he gave orders for the city gates to be shut at the beginning of every Sabbath, as soon as the evening began to fall. All right, so shut the city gates, Stop the traders coming in. That wasn't that successful. So once or twice, merchants who sold all sorts of goods spent Friday nights outside the city walls. And I interpret from that that actually they were doing that in the hope of doing some business outside the city walls on the Sabbath. Uh, Nehemiah then got a little bit more forceful and threatened them with force, in which case the, the merchants actually went away. If that was not enough, Nehemiah then found out that many of the Jewish men were into marrying again, marrying women from Ashod, Ammon and Moab, who were enemies of Israel. Half the children spoke the language of Asherod or some other language and didn't know how to speak our language, is what he was saying. And I reprimanded the men and called curses upon them, beat them, and pulled out their hair. Wow, that's a violent response, isn't it? 
And I'm kind of thinking, how frustrated is Nehemiah getting with these people? Uh, and it's not surprising, I think, that Nehemiah was angry. As, remember, parts of the celebrations of the war, when they completed it, they had promised that they would not intermarry. They realised that doing that was diluting, especially with the non-speaking of the Jewish language, then they couldn't learn the Jewish ways and the rituals and the laws that God had given to the Jewish people. But there was worse. Go back to Eliashib, the trusted priest, who'd let Tobiah have a room. He'd also let his uh, grandson marry a, uh, a daughter. Of, sorry, one of Sanballat's daughters. Sanballat was one of the early people who was the enemies of the Jews. Nehemiah threw that grandson out of town. The, the whole thing then concludes with Nehemiah praying again to the Lord. Um, and that is the, the sort of history. But what of Nehemiah the person? What of the Jewish citizens and What's the significance of this wall? From my perspective, the walls, I think, are hugely symbolic. Chapter 1 says, The Jews who returned from exile from Babylonia were in great difficulty, and the foreigners who lived nigh looked down on them. Uh, and that the walls of Jerusalem were still broken down and the gates had not been restored. That's the bit that he'd been told. We don't build walls anymore, or do we? But, and I, uh, modern cities don't have walls, so perhaps it's difficult for us to see quite why it was so upsetting for Nehemiah. In the text, uh, the reading around the subject, it suggests that the walls offered safety from raids, protection from the temple, and symbolised strength and peace. Therefore, in the absence of a wall, the city and its temple were vulnerable. To me, it suggests a little bit more than that. It suggests that the Jews were not operating together, that they were a disparate group, each looking after himself. Uh, perhaps they were too accustomed to being ruled by other people. Perhaps they were used to being slaves, to being victims. They're, they were dispirited, maybe, Certainly not with God, not with each other, not cohesive, and not working together. I guess there was a lot of whinging and whining about the state of the city. And we hear plenty of that these days, don't we? Armchair gripers, barrack room lawyers, I can't believe what the council has done, that the council lets this happen. Look at the state of that over there, the village wreck needs doing. Our church needs so-and-so. Someone ought to do something about it. Do you know, when you have this mindset of someone ought to do something about it, you make yourself powerless. You disable yourself with that way of thinking. You make yourself a victim. So, coming back to the Jews, they might have built their own houses 
You can do that individually. But building a wall, that's another matter. That is an undertaking that can only be managed collectively. And for me, this is the crux of the Nehemiah story. From my perspective, uh, this... Start again. With God's help, Nehemiah was able to take the initiative and encourage people to work together, each with their own abilities, acting as one body. And I was sort of moving through to the New Testament with the idea of one body, people working together and being part of one. Modern word for that? Synergy, isn't it? This working together and combined effects is greater than the sum of the separate parts. Uh, but what of Nehemiah? So that's the, the walls, Nehemiah. And I find it quite satis- uh, fascinating that on one hand we have Nehemiah the cupbearer and on the other hand we have Nehemiah the wall builder. The cupbearer was a servant. He was obviously a very trusted servant to be dealing with the king and handling the king's food, but a servant nonetheless. And I've not really read anything to suggest that he was known as a talented organiser or leader, yet he prayed to God for help in faith and gained a vision of what needed to be done. Through this process, he became a leader. And of the people, do you think they were good followers? I think like most of us, When he was there and leading, they were okay, but as soon as things were all right and he was gone, then it all just deteriorated again. I think we pretty much all fit into that pattern. But while they were building the wall, they were all doing things that they probably weren't accustomed to, developing skills that they hadn't previously had. And that tends to make me lead towards the New Testament and the idea of gifts, if you like. And Nehemiah didn't know that he was going to be able to organise and lead all these people. He saw a need. He prayed to God about it, and God enabled him to fulfil that need. And that takes me, again, I'm going to go on to the gifts now, but from Peter, he says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of gifts. Use them well to serve one another. So, as Nehemiah Nehemiah had been doing, I know it's Old Testament, they don't talk about gifts in the Old Testament, Nehemiah had been given gifts to organise and lead people, and he was using those to serve people, and serve the community. Um, We all have gifts, talents, abilities, call them whatever you want. But you don't always know that you have them. You need to see a need and seek to do something about it. And not everyone is going to be a great leader. There are lots of other roles. I want to look at uh, Paul going to the New Testament now, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and 12, chapter 12. 
There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit gives them. There are different ways of serving, but the same Lord is served. There are different abilities to perform service, but the same God gives ability for all their particular service. The Spirit's presence is shown in some way in each person for the good of all. The Spirit gives one person a message full of wisdom, while to another person the same Spirit gives a message full of knowledge. One and the same Spirit gives faith to one person, while another person he gives the power to heal. The Spirit gives to one person the power to work miracles, to another the gift of speaking God's message, and yet to another the ability to tell the difference between gifts that come from the Spirit and those that do not. To one person he gives the ability to speak strange tongues, and to another he gives the ability to explain what is said. But it is one and the same Spirit who does all this. As he wishes, he gives a different gift to each person. And in Romans chapter 12, his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is to giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. If you have the gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. That is the gifts. And notice, as Peter said, the gifts from God are used to serve other people. Notice, uh, when the Jews started working together, they became a nation, a city. And notice the use of A, in effect, all those people became one. There's an identity that they create through doing that. So that brings me then to the final bit, the idea of one body. And I go to Corinthians chapter 12. Christ is like a single body which has many hearts, parts. It is still one body even though it is made up of different parts. In the same way, all of us, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, have been baptised into the one body by the same Spirit, and we have all been given the one Spirit to drink. For the body itself is not made up of only one part, but of many parts. If the foot were to say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, 
that would not keep it from being a part of the body. And if the ear were to say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not keep it from being a part of the body. It is the whole, if the whole body were just an eye, how would it hear? And if it were only an ear, how would it smell? As it is, however, God put every different parts in a body just as he wanted it to be. There would not be a body if it were only one part. As it is, there are many parts to one body. So then, I cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, nor can the head say to the feet, well, I don't need you. On the contrary, we cannot do without the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, and those parts that we think aren't worth very much are the ones which we treat with greater care. While the parts of the body which don't look very nice are treated with special modesty, which the more beautiful parts do not need. God himself has put the body together in such a way to give greater honour to those parts that need it. And so there is no division in the body. All its different parts have the same concern for one another. If one part of the body suffers, all of the parts of the body suffer with it. If one part is praised, all the other parts share its happiness. And all of you are Christ's body, and each one is a part. It's evident to me that God will equip us to do his work if we ask him. He may not as equip us in the way that we expect, and we might not feel very comfortable at first, and we will probably have to learn new knowledge or develop a new skill. But whatever gift we acquire, we need to use it in the role of a follower. Much is made of leadership in the church and in business, and you might be surprised to know that to be a good leader, first and foremost, you must be a good follower. In the Christian faith, we are followers, all followers of Jesus, and even the highest ranking of our leaders must be a follower of Jesus. A leader cannot be a leader without followers. So, um, that's it. So, surprisingly, then, we talk about leaders so much, but we say so little about followership and how important that is. Can I have one of the pictures up, please? One of the pictures? First one? There's a bit of audience participation on this last bit now, so not that one, this one. So, what do we see here? Just a statement, a few simple statements. What might we see from that picture? 
A storm. Okay. Yep. Anything else? Sleep. Yeah, somebody's asleep. I wonder who that somebody is. Jesus is asleep, and they are, the other chaps are the, uh, sorry? They are panicking, aren't they? The, the stormies are come up, they are panicking, paralysed with fear. What action are they taking to save the boat? Nothing, and in that nothingness that they're doing, actually they are in real danger. And that, that's that bit. The way I sort of look at that is thinking that Jesus is asleep. Jesus is right there with them, but he's asleep. And I think about us in our lives when things get very stormy or troublesome, we panic. And in that panic, sometimes we become paralysed and frightened. And Jesus is there, right next to us, but not present in our mind. And to get rid of that fear, what we need to do is have presence, uh, Jesus' presence in our mind, alive, not asleep. And that, I think that's what I get from that picture, and I think that's what was happening in the story of Nehemiah, to some extent. In contrast, the next picture. Uh, a bit corny. Um, I got this from a tin tabernacle in Salisbury Plain, as it happens. But what do we see in that picture? We see a rescue party. We see, we, we see a boat sinking. We see people working together. And it's oops, <clears throat> a little bit odd, but see the lighthouse in, in the corner. Oh, I've ruined that. Oh, it's working again, sorry. Uh, representing God's shining light, if you like. But those people are working together under God's guidance or in his spirit. And notice that they are all... Got, they've all got a different awe, in a way, for me, representing different abilities, yet they're all coordinated and working together. What would happen if one of those people decided that they weren't going to play? It would be chaos. And that's all it takes, isn't it? You've got a team of people working together. One person can easily disrupt the whole thing. And that's really where I wanted to, to finish. And just keep in mind why we're reading the story of Nehemiah in the first place, uh, to bring the church back together, and which is why I came with this concept of one body and working together and how easy it is for anyone to, to disrupt it all. <clears throat>